Welcome back to our study on the book of Galatians. In our last session, I introduced the, the letter to the Galatians itself, this angry, impassioned, urgent letter written by the Apostle Paul to these churches in this region of Antioch. And I pointed out there that the reason that the Apostle Paul is so impassioned, that he's so urgent in the way that he writes to them is because he thinks the gospel itself, the good news, the message that he has been given is being abandoned by the Galatians, by these Galatian Christians. The gospel itself is at stake. In this session, I wanna to turn to the question of what is this gospel? And the way I'm gonna summarize it throughout this whole series is that the gospel for the Apostle Paul is the good news of Christian freedom. And this term freedom, it's all throughout the letter to the Galatians when you read it. Paul is always talking about what it means to be free, the freedom that we have been given, comparing that with bondage and slavery of the past. So it's obviously very central to his letter. And commentators have picked up on this. The Australian New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, his commentary on the book of Galatians, he simply titled it, Paul's Charter of Christian Freedom. And more recently, a book that just came out last year, a collection of essays by scholars on how to teach and to preach this book, was entitled simply, Christ Has Set Us Free. And that's the message that Paul wants to get across. This letter is his charter of Christian freedom. And the good news that we, he wishes to proclaim is that Christ has set us free. We're going to look at that over these next four sessions. What does that mean? And today I want to focus our discussion on one aspect of that freedom, freedom from the law. I want to begin by looking at Paul's statement that he makes in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It's a kind of thesis statement of sorts, central to the whole argument that he'll make throughout the letter. It comes right after that autobiographical portion that we looked at in our last session. And in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, here's what Paul says. We ourselves, he's talking to his recipients who might be Jewish Christians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the central question, really, at the heart of the book of Galatians. Is a person justified by the law or by works of the law, or is a person justified by faith? Now, justification, this is one of those theological terms that really needs some definition. Because the way that we use the word in English language to justify myself or justification as a defense of something I've done, it's not really how it's being used by Paul. This is not the word in Greek that he has in mind. And, you know, a lot of people don't quite understand the word justification, I think. There's an interesting story by this Presbyterian theologian, John Gerstner, and he talks about how one time he was 
preaching a sermon on justification in front of a large audience. And there were some local journalists from a newspaper in attendance. And he said that after he preached this long sermon on justification by faith, he read an account of it in the paper. And the journalist said that this preacher had talked about how you can have just a vacation by faith. In other words, I guess, just believe and you'll get the airfare paid for. That's what the journalist took from it. Which just goes to show justification needs some kind of definition. But this, this doctrine, this idea of justification by faith, it might sound a bit esoteric or abstract, but really it's at the heart of Christian faith. It was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation and all the debates and turmoil in the 16th century. Justification by faith is often called the material principle of the Protestant Reformation. And in fact, John Calvin, one of the leading Protestant reformers, in a letter that he wrote to a Catholic bishop named Jacob Sadaletto, he said that justification is the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. Later in his great work, The Institutes of Christian Religion, he said that justification by faith is the main hinge upon which religion turns. And we as Anglicans, we also have affirmed this doctrine of justification by faith. And you see it if you look at the end of the Book of Common Prayer and what are called the Articles of Religion, these statements of belief that we have in our prayer book. Article 11 talks about the doctrine of justification by faith. And it says, that we are justified by faith is a most wholesome doctrine as expressed in the homily of justification. There's an entire homily that was written in the 16th century by the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer to explain this doctrine of justification by faith. But what does it mean? What is this word justification? What does it mean to be justified? Well, we know it has to do with someone being just or righteous. The word dikaios in Greek, this is the word for someone who's just or someone who is upright, someone who you look at and say, that's a virtuous person. And Paul is using this word dikaio, which is uh, a word that has to do with someone being declared to be a righteous or just person. It's a kind of legal term. It was often used to talk about a judge exonerating someone who had been charged with a crime. When the judge justifies the defendant, the judge is declaring the defendant to be in the right, to be a person who is just, not guilty. In Galatians, Paul uses this term to talk about the basis upon which a person is considered righteous. I like that term, considered righteous. This is what the scholar Peter Oakes in his commentary, it's how he translates this word justification. Oakes says when he's translating chapter 2, verse 16, that we are considered righteous on the basis of trust in Christ and not on the basis of works of the law. So this is the question that Paul is discussing in the book of Galatians. This is at the heart of the conflict. This, Paul thinks, is what is at stake. How do we answer the question, 
What is it that makes a person righteous? And the first way that Paul goes about this in chapter 2 and parts of chapter 3 is he gives two very stark alternatives. Either a person is justified, considered righteous by the law or by faith. The first one is this alternative that someone could be justified by the law. This is the opinion of the false teachers who have come in. We don't know a lot about who these teachers were. It's not entirely clear. Paul doesn't tell us. What we can glean from the letter is that there's a group of teachers who claim to be Christians, and they've come to these young Christians in Antioch, and they've told them that, yes, that belief in Jesus, trust in Jesus, baptism, all of this is a necessary thing to to becoming part of the people of God, to being considered to be one of the righteous. But if you truly want to continue in that, if you want to remain within this group of the righteous, then belief in Christ is not enough. You also need to adapt all of these practices from the Jewish law. You need to be circumcised like Jews were instructed to be circumcised. You need to adapt the all the kind of Sabbath regulations and dietary restrictions that go along with Jewish law. You need to make sure that in your moral life you are observing every commandment of the Jewish law. And there's, this kind of coheres with a certain way of understanding Judaism. A lot of Jews in Jesus' day, they would have very, very quickly said that they believed that they were saved as a people first and fundamentally by grace that God in His mercy had chosen them. At the same time, they also thought that what made them a worthy people, what made them righteous in contrast to the wicked nations, is that they had this claim on the law and this certain way of living that set them apart from everyone else. So it's the law is what keeps you in. It's the law and your observation of the law. That's what makes you, what helps other people consider you righteous and not wicked. This is exactly why Peter, when these Jews came to Galatia, it's why Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. That thing in chapter two that Paul is so upset about, Peter abandoning table fellowship. It's because Peter feels pressure to show that he is following Jewish dietary laws, that he's not eating with those who are unclean. But by doing so, Paul says, he is actually communicating that what makes a person righteous, the basis of which we consider a person righteous in the group of the righteous is whether that person has the law, whether they observe it. And for Paul, this is a denial of the gospel itself. Because as Paul shows in Galatians chapter 3, the law does not exonerate The law does not justify on the basis of simply possessing the law or keeping some of the requirements of the law. No one can be considered righteous on this basis. Ultimately, if you really take the law and all of its demands into account, then every single one of us, Jew and Gentile alike, stand condemned and cursed by the law. And as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it was for this reason that Christ came, so that Christ himself could bear 
the curse of the law, take it upon himself for us. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says that if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Then the gospel itself is denied. There is no reason for Christ to die if you can be considered righteous simply by being part of this group that observes the law. Paul says that the gospel is quite different from this. The good news that he wants the Galatians to remember, that he had instructed them in, is that what makes a person righteous, the reason that we can be considered righteous, justice, in the right, is on the basis of trust, faith, in this gift of Jesus Christ. That is the good news, the message that Christ came to bear the curse of the law, and that through faith, through trust, all that belongs to Christ can become ours, and we are considered righteous simply by being united with Him. This, Paul says, it was what it means to be justified by faith, that it's simply, purely a gift in which we trust. And this is at the heart of Christian freedom, freedom from the law, freedom from some kind of external standard that determines who we are. Here's how he puts it in chapter 2, verse 19. For through the law, he says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law. Through the law, Paul says, I was freed from the law so that I might live to God. And you have to keep in mind, Paul was not just any Jew. Paul had grown up and joined this group called the Pharisees, the most observant, most strictly observant uh, Jews following the law. Paul had been a teacher among them. In some of his other letters, he tells us about how, how high up the ranks he had risen as a Jew, as someone who possessed and kept the law. And yet, as he says in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, all that he had attained as a Jew, all of that status, what he could be considered on the basis of who he was by birth, what he had done, what groups he was a part of, all of it now he had died to, he abandoned, he considers as nothing, simply so that he may be found in Christ, so that he might live to God. That's what it means to be justified by faith. Now the question for us is, why does this matter today? What difference really does this make to our lives? Sometimes when we talk about things like justification, we think that this is really just a religious question. Maybe it has to do with what is the basis of our eternal salvation? And that's obviously a very important question. Or on what basis does God accept us? But those are all religious questions, different maybe from the experience of our day-to-day -day lives. In reality though, this message that Paul has about freedom from the law, this is something that goes much deeper simply than a religious question. It gets right to the heart of the question of identity. Who am I? What makes me who I am? It reminds me of that scene from Batman Begins where Rachel Dawes, the childhood sweetheart of Bruce Wayne, 
tells him in this poignant scene, it's not who you are underneath, it's what you do that defines you. And the truth is we have a lot of different things that we look to to define ourselves. A lot of identity markers that tell us who we are. We are who we are on the basis of our family, or maybe it's our skills or our career. For some of us, it's wealth. For some of us, it's the clothing that we wear. For some, it's the sports team that you belong to or the political group that you're affiliated with. All of these are ways of answering the question of who am I? What defines me? What makes me who I am? And the philosopher Charles Taylor, he, he talks about how we live in a culture today of what he calls mutual self-display. Not only do we have a lot of categories and look to a variety of different things to define us, but we're also constantly having to perform those identities in front of other people to show each other, here's who I really am. I am who I am on the basis of how I look or what I can do or where I went to school or where I work or the kind of house I live in or who I affiliate with. All of these things, this is who I am. And it's how we judge one another as well, isn't it? Who you are is what you have, what you can do, how you appear, where, where do you work? These are the things that are so close to this question of identity. Who am I? And so often our identities are frail and we ourselves are not even sure because we're having to perform them and acquire them. But Paul's gospel, his good news, is a rejection of all of those other measures of identity. It's not simply a rejection of the law as the basis, the Jewish law as the basis of identity. It's a rejection of anything that's outside of Christ. He says this very clearly in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where he says, through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Then Paul goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, this language, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul keeps using this I, me language because what he's talking about is the question of identity. Who am I? And for Paul, the good news is that who I am and who you are has nothing to do with how I was born or with what I have done or what groups I have managed to become a part of or how, how well as a Jew I have kept the Jewish law. All of these old identities have been crucified. They have been put to death. They mean nothing anymore. Who you are is now determined simply by your identity in Christ. And this is why Paul can conclude this whole discussion of justification by faith by talking about the fact that all of our old identities are gone. Now we are all one in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Perhaps we could translate this into language for our own day. There is neither black nor white. There is neither rich nor poor. There is neither educated nor uneducated. There is, dare I say, neither Aggie nor Longhorn. For all of these things are no longer defining identity markers for us. We are who we are purely on our trust in Jesus Christ. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be free from the law, free from any other external standard of identity. This is the good news of Christian freedom. And I hope that that is encouraging to you. I hope it's liberating. And I look forward to continuing to unpack this rich and profound and life-changing message of freedom with you in the next three sessions.